Welcome to FedSpeak, brought to you by MNI Market News. I'm Pedro da Costa, and it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Thomas Barkin, President of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, on this crucial week for monetary policy and really for the economy as a whole. Thanks so much for being here, Tom. I'm glad to be here, Pedro. So why don't we start with the most obvious place, which I guess is this week's decision to raise rates by a half a percentage point, right? Um, it's the biggest move in 20 years, and I was wondering if you could start by just explaining your own rationale for backing this decision. Yeah, to me, it was pretty straightforward. I mean, demand remains extremely strong, um, you know, whether that be uh, consumer demand or business demand. Um, inflation is uncomfortably high. It's broad-based and it's persistent. But rates are low. And so if you've got strong demand and broad-based inflation and low rates, the decision to normalize as fast as feasible uh, seemed pretty straightforward. Now, Chair Powell signaled this week's move could be followed by a couple more 50 basis points. Is that your base case as well? And and is a couple, two or three, or uh, maybe unspecific on purpose? Well, I mean, of course, you want to retain the optionality to make a decision at every meeting. And with geopolitical risks being elevated, you, you don't want to, uh, or I don't want to pre-commit uh, to that. A lot can happen. But the logic I just went through would say you continue to go as fast as uh, feasible. And in my mind, uh, were conditions to stay the same, which of course is a pretty big uh, were, pretty big if, um, I think let's normalize as fast as we can feasibly get there. And if you do a couple more, let's say, do you see, let's say you do two more and you get to 2%, how much further do you think rates should rise from there and, and how quickly? Well, it's going to depend on the state of the economy. The way, the way I think about it is you've got um, demand on the one hand and you've got inflation on the other hand. And when you've got the situation of today where demand is very strong and inflation is very high, both are pointing in the direction that you can raise rates and raise rates relatively quickly. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't presume to have any perfect uh, forecasting ability in terms of where those two are going to go. But, you know, for me, the time to reassess is when inflation starts to come down or when underlying demand starts to come down. And we'll see what happens then. Now, another closely watched part of the press conference, of course, was the question about 75 basis points. And and the chair said very emphatically that the committee is not currently considering a 75 basis point move. But uh, in the spirit of optionality, as you just mentioned, would you completely rule out such a move if, if inflation doesn't come down as, as the Fed and, and as your forecasts expect? Well, I think you've been around me long enough to know I never rule anything uh, out. So I think anything uh, would be on the table. Uh, I'll just say our pace is pretty accelerated right now. And so if you uh, you know go to the pace that the chairman suggested, that's a pretty accelerated pace. And so to me, it's a little less about uh, it would be less about inflation than it would be around inflation expectations. If you started seeing signs uh, as imperfect as inflation expectation assessments are, but if you start convincing yourself that inflation expectations have started to move, that's to me the strongest case to try to move faster. Okay. And now if, if 50 basis points is the, the current or existing baseline, what kind of economic shifts or downshift, whether it's a downshift on inflation or uh a, a shock to growth, what would you like to see before stepping down to more moderate quarter point increases or even pausing? Well, I, I guess I guess I'd refer back to what I said earlier, which is, you know, I'm looking hard at 
you know, the strength of continued demand. I'm looking hard because the stronger it is, the higher the uh, desire is to quiet it. Um, and I'm looking hard at the pace of inflation because the higher it is, the stronger the urge is to quiet it. So if those things move, that would move. Obviously, um, I'll, I'll say I'm sensitive to the our inability to understand exactly where neutral is. And so, uh, if you will, as you enter the intersection, you might be more inclined to slow down and look around. Uh, but you know, as well as I do, that um, most assessments of neutral have a pretty wide range and a pretty wide confidence interval. So I think I start more with the first two, demand and inflation, but I'm certainly sensitive to where are we against most assessments of, of neutral. Yeah. Now let's talk about the inflation problem more broadly, if we can, since as you and Chirpal highlighted, it is, it is kind of priority number one, and, and we are at levels that are very high historically. One of the benefits of the, the regional Fed system is you're in touch with a lot of businesses and, mm -hmm. and, and community leaders as well. And I'm wondering what you're hearing from fifth district contacts as far as when they expect inflation to, to come down. And, and I guess what they're hearing as well on the employment side in terms of labor shortages in the wake of this morning's employment report. Yeah. So, you know, uh, me, my background is 30 years in business. I think if I'm going to add value to this conversation, it's going to be being in touch with people on the ground. And so I'm out every week um, talking to businesses, trying to understand what's happening. And so here's where I, I think I am understanding that we took a week off because of FOMC. So I'll be back uh, in Cecil County, Maryland uh, on Monday. But um, here's what I think I've learned, uh, which is demand is still extremely strong. Uh, that is because of uh, stimulus, that is because of excess savings, that is because of strong corporate balance sheets and personal balance sheets, that's because of well-funded state and local governments. Um, uh, and I don't see any quieting uh, in that yet. Uh, you, know, you can even see with mortgage rates up, you're still seeing you know, the housing market being very strong. Um, people would like the supply chain stuff to to get solved, but it's just taking longer and longer and longer. And it's sort of whack-a-mole. The latest issues, of course, being the Ukraine and being the shutdown uh, in China, but it, it's just taking a long time to get there. And I, I guess I'd just say businesses have a production planning problem because you're trying to meet what future demand is going to be. But whether it be, you know, COVID-driven or uncertainty about you know, the shift back from goods to services, people have a hard time having confidence in predicting the demand, and then they're just having a hard time getting the supply in place to, to meet whatever the forecast is. So that does seem to be uh, continuing. And as I said, I think it feels to most businesses like whack-a-mole. Uh, when you think you've solved one problem, you get another. On, on the labor side, uh, labor markets are tight. We had a strong jobs report this morning. I will say that the amount of noise I hear from businesses is less today than it was five or six months ago. It was almost desperation five or six months ago. Uh, today, it, it has eased up. I, I don't think it's that they're numb. I think it's that you have seen a big rise in participation, uh, particularly in the lower end of the workforce. And so um, the hospitality sector is one that I'm hearing a lot less noise from. Where I still hear noise is skilled trades, uh, construction, truck drivers, nurses, manufacturing. Uh, these are places that were tight before the crisis. Um, and most of them, demand went up or you had a, a wave of retirements and they're just really tight uh, today. So that's where the biggest pressure is right now. It's skilled trades. I think there's been a significant easing on the lower end, enabled in some part by highly increased wages. So it's not just that, you know, people have come back and everything's back to where it was. Wages are higher. 
Um, people have gotten more creative in sourcing. People have come back into the workforce and, and uh, you have seen some easing there. On the inflation side, still broad, still elevated, still people wondering about you know, how long this is gonna last. Um, I'll say at the higher end goods or higher end services, uh, there's no slowing on the inflation side. But on the lower end goods, um, I think you are seeing most, the first signs, I'll call it, of price sensitivity. Um, and you could imagine why that would be is lower income, as some sec- segment of the lower income population may have spent through their, their savings, gas and f- food prices presumably will hit them much more significantly than higher income folks. And so uh, that, that is where I'm starting to see trade down and, and price sensitivity you know, in the lower income uh, uh, side of it. I'll say as you talk to business leaders and you ask them, what kind of pricing power do you think you're going to have a year from now? They have not yet convinced themselves that this pricing power is continuous or long lasting. Now, whatever combination of uh, they just can't see that far or they believe we're going to have an impact or whatever, or they believe funds are going to run out. They, they do not see this as a long term regime change. They see this as a shorter term thing that we're going to get to the other side of at this point. That's really interesting. And you mentioned the game of whack-a-mole. Is, it, is that a fear that kind of haunts you that if if this game, if you will, persists, that it makes it harder for the Fed to to address inflation because it is uh, supply-driven rather than, than demand-driven? Yeah, and, I'll, and maybe I'll point to short-term factors and then longer-term factors. You know, obviously, a lot of us thought a year ago that this was about getting chips in cars. And as soon as we got chips in cars you know, inflation would ease. And what we've seen, of course, is it's much broader than that. And the longer that you have elevated inflation, the higher the risk that firms and consumers are going to think that inflation is going to stay elevated. And at least for me, that informs, you know, my forward-leaning look on normalizing uh, rates. Um, I think you also have to be attentive to longer-term factors. I gave a talk on this a couple of weeks ago. But, um, you know, I I definitely think that... uh, the Fed did lots of great things over the last 20 or 30 years to uh, control inflation. I also think we had the wind at our back, if you want to put it that way, because you had globalization lowering input costs, you had the rise of China, you had e-commerce and the ability to electronically shop, you had the discovery of uh, the innovation in fracking, which made you know oil more available and, and somewhat lower costs. And so a lot of things helped us out. And there is a real risk, I think, going forward that some of those things uh, might either reverse or we might have things that don't help us out, like you know, deglobalization, or if, uh, God forbid, we end up in a situation where we're no longer sourcing from lower cost countries like China, uh, um, uh, climate transition and what that might do, uh, the, the ongoing effects of uh, you know, the situation in the Ukraine, you know, to the extent that it expands and broadens. There's a lot of things you can come up with that might create more real side inflationary pressure. If that happens, it's not that we can't control inflation. It just means you have to be a little bit tighter on policy to do that. And, you know, it's almost the flip of we kept inflation under control in the 2010s, even though policy was a little bit under where most people thought neutral was. You just have to wonder if we see more inflationary pressure, we might have to run a little bit above where most people think neutral is. And keeping in mind that that uncertainty band that is fairly wide, as you mentioned, what is your specific forecast for inflation as as we close out this year? Well, I get to redo my forecast in June, so I don't have a precise uh, point forecast now. What I will say is I think you've got two streams going on in parallel. One is the real side stream, and one is, if I can call it, the monetary 
stream. On the real side stream, this is getting chips in cars. And I really do think inflation is going to, I really do think I should say controlling for unanticipated events like another thing we saw on the Ukraine or who knows what else could happen, COVID uh, resurgence. I think you're, you know, you are going to see it settle over time as supply chains do finally uh, catch up. Um, that's the real side stream. There's then a second stream, which is the monetary stream. And as we raise rates, that's going to raise borrowing costs, that's going to quiet demand, and that's going to bring it more uh, into contact. Uh, I don't think it's going to be fast. So I think it's going to take us a while to get inflation under control. And that's one of the reasons why I'm supportive of the accelerated uh, rate increase path that we talked about at the beginning. Given the underlying strength of the economy and of the job market that we've already discussed, are you surprised by emerging fears of recession and, and how often the word gets mentioned in markets these days? And, and how do you rank the probabilities of a recession in, say, the next 12 to 18 months? Very much surprised by it. And I, I would just underline that as I talk to businesses, I'm hearing a lot of people worry about uh, recessions. And, you know, I just remind myself that where we are today is pretty unfamiliar. If you've been a senior executive in an institution, you've seen one rate increase cycle in the last 15 years. And that rate increase cycle only went up to a little under two and a half percent. So I think uh, people are worried, uh, despite the fact that in 2021, almost all of them will tell you they had record earnings. They're worried about a recession. Um, a couple things that have occurred to me, um, you know, one is that uh, people really don't like inflation. I'll just put it that way. Um, uh, it's unfamiliar. It's a new, you got to manage an environment you're not that comfortable with. It's hard work, whether that's convincing customers to take a price increase or convincing suppliers not to increase your price. Um, it puts new uncertainty into the situation. It's perceived as unfair. Some people win, some people lose. Um, and, you know, if you're a worker, um, your employer gives you a raise. That's because of what you did in the workforce. And finally, they acknowledge what you're doing. And then you go out and your gas prices are up. It just doesn't feel feel right to people. So I think that creates a certain amount of stress in the system. That's part of what's uh, going on here. I think people certainly worry that the path to control inflation will require the Fed going into restrictive territory um, and that that could cause uh, a recession. And of course, I'll just remind everybody that you know, the Fed hasn't been that restrictive in a very long time. And so people, you know, if you jump all the way to 1981, you're sort of not exactly thinking about today. Rates are, uh, you know, quite less, or quite a lot lower than they were uh, then. But I, people, people talk about it, I understand it. Um, one thing I've tried to think about is, um, yeah, how, do you, how do you normalize at a pace that people get comfortable with it? Um, uh, you know, when you go get gas and the first time your gas is at three fifty nine a gallon, I'm probably speaking for the southern part of my district, not uh, where most of the listeners live. It's probably more expensive there. Um, you go, holy cow, that's a lot. You wonder whether you should fill up the tank. Well, two weeks later, you kind of get used to it. And then you say, OK, I can pay three fifty nine a gallon. And I think it's going to be like that um, on rates too. people just get we'll, we'll get used to it. and We'll get through it. We're still well under neutral, as all of your listeners uh, no, and I believe, except we've got a long time before we do something that throws us into a recession. But, you know, I understand why people are concerned about it. You're right about the price tag. Definitely more in the in the 450 range up here in Washington, D.C., and, and I assume even higher in New York and Boston. But um, right. 
Uh, let me ask you about another aspect of, of your monetary tightening campaign, of course, which is your $9 trillion balance sheet and plans to unwind it. The Fed has said that the interest rate is the main tool for tightening policy and for conducting policy generally. But of course, you made a major announcement about the rate at which you'll be reducing your assets. Uh, and I understand that the Fed wants this to happen in the background, but I wonder if you have any concerns about how the markets will react once the, the liquidity is actually withdrawn. Well, I, I think we should and are always concerned about uh, whether there's enough liquidity in the market, whether markets are going to function in the right way. You know, I remind myself this is only the second time we've done this, which is to unwind uh, balance sheet increases. And so uh, to suggest that you know exactly how it's going to play out, I think is a little uh, uh, aggressive. So I, I think it's important to be uh, focused on it. I will say that uh, the launch of balance sheet tightening, you know, once we got past the tech taper tantrum in, in 2013 was quite smooth and we're on that same playbook, I think without the same tantrum. And so I think market participants will have now a sense of how it works um, that we didn't have the last time. So I think that'll be uh, good. I think we've now fully transitioned to an ample reserves regime. So I don't think, uh, you know, we're still in the same place in terms of testing the depths of how far the balance sheet could go. But I, I'd also say it, it seems odd to me to imagine that there's going to be too much stress removing, you know, taking our balance sheet from $9 trillion to $8 trillion. I mean, we're at very elevated levels. And so I think, you know, we ought to get back to normal. That gives us ammunition for the next time we need it. And again, I think we're a long way from the point of, uh, of what ought to be causing market stress. And are there any parts of the market in particular that you're watching for? Of course, yesterday was a, a sharp reversal from the initial rally uh, post decision without asking you to chime in on day-to-day -day moves. You know, is it, is it housing? Is it corporate credit? Where might the canary and the coal mine be this time? Well, so the last two or three years, if you were thinking about financial stability, you'd be thinking about uh, valuations, which obviously increased greatly uh, during the pandemic. We're now in the period of time where you're raising rates. And so obviously you start to think more about leverage in those areas. And so, you know, the question I ask myself is where's the leverage? The, the hard part for the Fed is in almost every asset class, maybe every asset class, um, over 50% of the leverage is outside of the banking system. And so we see very clearly what's happening in the banking system. I, I say, I feel very comfortable with what I see uh, in the banking system, but I, what I'm not comfortable about is, you know, what I don't know. And uh, you'll remember in uh, February, 2018, when the tariffs were first announced, it turned out that there were um, volatility ETFs that were highly leveraged that lost 80, 85% of their value. I didn't know that. And, uh, you know, Archegos would be another example of leverage that certainly I didn't know about before it happened. So you do, you just worry about where's the leverage you don't know about. Could be in leveraged loans, uh, but, you know, it could equally be in, you know, uh, highly valued asset positions that have somehow gotten a lot of leverage attached to them that we don't yet know about. So that, that's where I worry about is the, where's the leverage. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. That was Thomas Barkin, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Thanks for coming on FedSpeak. Happy to be with you and everybody have a good weekend. Thanks, Tom.